Hello and welcome to the Allen Overy podcast. In this episode, we will discuss new requirements and best practice developments relevant to UK premium listed PLCs as they prepare their next annual report and plan for their 2023 AGM. I'm Kate Astley, Counsel in Allen Overy's Corporate Department, and I'm joined today by four colleagues, Victoria Rankmore, Kate Pumphrey, Matt Townsend and Paul McCarthy. We all work together on clients' annual reports and AGMs, and between us, we have specialist knowledge of corporate governance and reporting, employment law, climate and environmental law, and executive remuneration and incentives. The topics we've chosen today are those that we think will be an immediate practical focus for the people drafting annual reports and planning AGMs in the coming season. Specifically, we'll be covering diversity on boards and in executive management, market trends and new requirements for environmental and climate reporting, current high-profile aspects of remuneration reporting, and finally, best practice for the format and business of AGMs in 2023. It's quite a packed agenda, and for that reason, we're not planning to cover the government's plans for audit and corporate governance reform and possible future amendments to the UK Corporate Governance Code. There remains a significant element of wait and see in terms of how these reforms will be implemented, And so the impact on the drafting of this year's set of annual reports is likely to be quite limited. And so starting now with our headline topic, diversity on boards and in executive management, I will turn to Victoria Rankmore and Kate Pumphrey. Victoria is counsel in A&O's corporate department and like me, she advises clients on their annual reports and AGMs. Kate is also counsel, but in our employment department. So firstly, Victoria, lots of our listeners will be aware of recent changes to the listing rules and DTRs which impact annual report disclosure on diversity. The changes apply to reporting on financial years starting on or after 1st of April 2022, but the FCA is encouraging voluntary early reporting, and so the expectation is that most companies with financial year ends from 31st of December onwards will do their best report under the new rules from now. Could you summarise the headline points for us, please, Victoria? Yes, of course. Thanks, Kate. So I'd say that the most high profile change is the new requirement under the listing rules for companies to disclose whether or not they've met certain board diversity targets. The targets are that at least 40% of the board are women, at least one senior board position, so that's chair, CEO, CFO or CID, is held by a woman, and at least one board member is from a minority ethnic background. The disclosure needs to be made in the annual report and the company must choose a reference date within the year under review. We anticipate this will typically be financial year end. Any board changes between that chosen reference date and the date on which the annual report is approved should also be disclosed if they have affected the company's ability to meet the targets. To be clear, failure to meet the targets will not itself be a breach of the listing rules, but a company that doesn't meet them is required to state which targets it has not met and explain the reasons. Thanks, Victoria. In some ways, this doesn't feel like too much of a change for companies that have already been striving to meet or to exceed targets under the FTSE Women Leaders and Parker Reviews. But the new listing rule certainly raises the profile of the targets and perhaps ramps up the pressure on companies either to meet the targets or to give a clear and nuanced explanation as to why they haven't. A number of clients have mentioned feeling this pressure, actually. And so, Kate, I think it would be really helpful if you could please give us your employment lawyer's perspective on the issues companies might need to consider in their succession planning, perhaps particularly those companies that feel they need to do better as against the targets. Thank you, Kate. I think one of the main employment law challenges that the new requirements pose is how to navigate positive action in a lawful way. 
The first thing to say on this is that there's no obligation under English law to prefer one candidate over another where they are from an underrepresented group. However, many companies will naturally be looking to achieve or exceed the broad diversity targets that Victoria has explained, and positive action can help them to do this. Under English law, treating employees and office holders and applicants for such roles less favourably than a real or hypothetical comparator on grounds of a protected characteristic is unlawful discrimination, unless it falls under the exception for positive action under the Equality Act 2010. The protected characteristics under the English legislation are age, disability, sex, gender reassignment, marital status, maternity or pregnancy, race and religion or belief. Positive action is therefore the tool which, if used successfully, allows employers to make strides in the DNI recruitment sphere lawfully. Positive action, as opposed to unlawful, positive discrimination, is lawful in recruitment and promotion and allows employers to prefer a candidate from a protected group over other candidates if the employer reasonably thinks that the protected group is underrepresented, the favoured candidate is as qualified as the other candidate, the more favourable treatment is a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim, and the employer does not have a policy of treating the protected group more favourably in recruitment and promotion. These requirements are not straightforward, and there are risks associated with positive action because the precise scope of the provisions is in some respects unclear and there isn't much case law in the legislation. So employers should take legal advice on how to approach positive action. Thorny issues may arise in relation to how to demonstrate low participation and how to handle tiebreaker scenarios between potentially equally qualified candidates. Where relying on underrepresentation as a justification for positive action, employers need to have some indication or evidence to show low participation. This might be by means of statistics or, where these are not available, by evidence based on monitoring, consultation or national surveys. Employers looking to rely on positive action should therefore record how they have compared participation in their workforce at board level with appropriate peer, local or national data relating to persons who share a particular protected characteristic. One of the trickiest areas, in my view, is how to approach qualifications in the context of board recruitment. At a senior level in particular, recruitment and promotion decisions rarely come down to qualifications in the formal sense, which means that there is a lot of evaluation of more subjective qualities when recruiting. To assist with walking this tightrope of determining equal merit, companies should establish a set of criteria against which board candidates will be assessed. These criteria could take account of a candidate's overall ability, competence and professional experience, together with any relevant formal or academic qualifications, as well as other qualities required to carry out particular roles. They should also have an eye on the Corporate Governance Code requirement for the board and its committees to have a combination of skills, experience and knowledge. A considered approach to this topic in the context of succession planning and recruitment should enable companies to avoid straying into unlawful positive discrimination territory. Real care will also be needed in drafting annual report disclosures summarising policies, procedures and processes contributing to improving the diversity of a company's board and executive management. This should ensure that the wording both satisfies investors' inevitable appetite for transparency whilst remaining compliant with anti-discrimination legislation. 
similar points will arise in the preparation of board diversity policies and associated DTR disclosures. Under no circumstances should board diversity policies and description of them be framed as a general policy of favouring one protected group over another. Such policies are expressly prohibited under the legislation. Remembering this will be a helpful guide to companies around the employment law nuances posed by this topic. Thank you, Kate. And from the perspective of the people holding the pen on the annual report, I think this is closely linked to the point Victoria made that the targets specified by the listing rules are not hard requirements for board composition. And where a company hasn't met a target, an explanation of the company's circumstances is sufficient for compliance with the listing rules. In spite of this, though, some clients have told us that they are concerned that institutional shareholder groups could view them less favourably when writing their proxy reports if they haven't met all the targets. Do you think this is a valid concern, Victoria? And if it is, what can companies do to mitigate against negative feedback from institutional shareholders? I think it is potentially a valid concern. Um, It was different in 2022 in the sense that the new listing rule wasn't in place then. But we did note that a number of companies that didn't meet the targets specified in institutional shareholder guidelines found themselves with red tops or criticism from some institutions. Going forward, I think companies that don't meet diversity targets referred to in institutional guidelines will still need to be prepared for the possibility of some people taking a rather tick box approach to assessing diversity performance. I should note that the major institutional shareholder groups are likely to be refreshing their guidelines in the next few months. So it'll be interesting to see what developments there are in those and how the guidelines are applied over time. But coming back to your question, Kate, I think all companies can do to mitigate against negative feedback from institutional shareholders is to make sure, particularly if they haven't met targets, that they give a detailed explanation that's easy to locate for people who might be analysing the report. The explanation can include, as helpfully suggested by the listing rule guidance, information on any key policies, procedures and processes or plans that might contribute to improving the diversity of the board and executive management, in addition to any wider context the company considers relevant. It can also address any specific points that the refreshed institutional guidelines might focus on. Hopefully, this type of explanation will be sufficient to reassure institutional shareholders in many cases, and particularly where a company can show evidence of progress in its diversity performance over time. Thank you, Victoria. You mentioned executive management when you were talking about the explanations and contextual information companies might give. Do the listing rules also prescribe diversity targets for this level of an organisation? No, there are no targets for executive management, but there are disclosure requirements. Specifically, there is a new listing rule requirement for companies to include in a standardised table format in the annual report numerical data regarding the ethnic background and the gender identity or sex of the individuals, not just on its board and in senior board positions, but also in executive management. This ensures transparency, and since the disclosure will be made each year, it may over time be a driver for improving diversity in the executive pipeline. Companies also need to explain their approach to collecting the data and include collection methods and data sources. Some companies might need to review their processes and seek advice on this. Yes, The point around reporting gender identity or biological sex was the subject of considerable debate during the consultation on these new rules, accounting for 439 of the 540 responses to the consultation. The vast majority of respondents disagreed with explicitly focusing on self-identifying gender. Those respondents suggested, among other things, 
that doing so could lead to inconsistencies with the Equality Act 2010, where self-identified gender is not a protected characteristic, as well as more men by sex on boards to the extent that they identify as women. Consequently, the FCA opted for companies to have the choice of reporting based on sex or gender identity. Therefore, companies have a decision to make on which data point to report. Data protection and employment law considerations are engaged here, but my top tip on this would be not to reinvent the wheel. If possible, use the data points you are already collecting under existing lawful grounds. Having multiple diverging data points will likely be unhelpful and create complexity and legal risk which companies should try to avoid. Thank you, Kate. That is really interesting context. And Victoria, uh, before we move on from diversity to our next agenda item, are there any other points that we should draw out for people who are working on annual report drafting enlisted PLCs this year? Yes, I would draw out two additional points. The first is that while it's understandably the new listing rule targets that have grabbed the headlines, there are also a couple of changes to the DTRs, which will impact the annual report. Specifically, the updated DTRs anticipate that a company's disclosure on its diversity policy will be extended to include a description of how the policy applies to the key committees of the board, so the remuneration, audit and nomination committees, as well as how it applies to the board. And while the aspects of diversity covered by the DTRs are still non-exhaustive, the rule now explicitly implies that policies could cover wider characteristics such as ethnicity, sexual orientation, disability and socioeconomic background, in addition to age, gender, educational and professional background, which were already referred to. My second point, and I appreciate it's a rather dry one, relates to the location of the new disclosures within the annual report. For the listing rule disclosures on targets, there is some flexibility. A company might choose to include that information in its strategic report, where it already discloses certain diversity statistics as required by the Companies Act. Alternatively, it could be included further back in the annual report in the Corporate Governance Statement, alongside the diversity disclosures recommended by the UK Corporate Governance Code and required by the DTRs. The new disclosure required by the DTRs, however, in relation to diversity policies, must be included in the Corporate Governance Statement, as this is a specific requirement of the DTR. Thank you, Victoria and Kate. Let's now move on to our second topic, environmental and climate reporting, for which I'm pleased to introduce Matt Townsend. Matt is a partner at Alan & Overy and is global co-head of our environmental, climate and regulatory law group. I think it's fair to say that environmental and climate-related disclosures have been increasing in profile over many years and are scrutinised by a very wide range of stakeholders, including not only investors and regulators, but also NGOs, customers and employees. We could probably have a whole session just on this topic, but for now we'll hone in on two themes which are central to the listed PLC annual report context. Firstly, TCFD disclosure, which many companies grappled with for the first time in their annual report last year. And secondly, recent changes to the Companies Act, which in future years will impact the Non-Financial Information Statement, which is to be renamed the Non-Financial and Sustainability Information Statement. So firstly, TCFD, it would be great, Matt, to hear your thoughts on any lessons learned from the 2022 reporting season and what best practice might look like for the TCFD disclosure in 2023. Thanks, uh, Kate. Yes, it has been a very interesting uh, 18 months or so for premium listed companies uh, who are busy disclosing against the new listings rules for the first time. Uh, Companies falling within the scope of the TCFD disclosure requirements have been uh, busy 
conducting uh, gap analyses to understand whether they could say that they had made disclosures consistent with the TCFD's four pillars and all 11 recommended disclosures. Where a gap has been found, new processes and systems have had to be set up and governance and oversight over those processes had to be established. A plan on how to plug the gaps in terms of how the company would work towards full TCFD disclosure and the timing for that also had to be developed. Compounding things was that market and good practice hadn't really emerged and continues to evolve. Of course, we've now seen the first TCFD disclosures under the listing rule, and I'd like just to make a few quick observations arising from those. We saw companies mostly either saying that they had made disclosures consistent with all TCFD recommendations and recommended disclosures, or that they had made TCFD consistent disclosures except in relation to scenario analysis, and where they hadn't yet made a net zero commitment in relation to the targets they used to manage climate issues. That's not entirely surprising. Scenario analysis in particular takes significant investment and expertise, and a lot of companies are still building this up. Secondly, in terms of the location of the TCFD disclosures, you'll recall that although the listing rule doesn't require disclosures to be in the annual report, it's certainly encouraged that they would be. We observed a broad trend towards making TCFD disclosures in the annual report itself, although separate TCFD or sustainability reports were used where the disclosures were particularly lengthy. The key here is to explain why the disclosures have not been made in the annual report. Where a separate report was used, oftentimes the annual report would contain a summary of key disclosures made in that separate report. Finally, good and perhaps not so good practice is beginning to emerge. Helpfully, the FRC released a thematic review of TCFD disclosures in July of this year. It sets out five overarching headline ways in which companies could improve their disclosures. And those relate to granularity and specificity, balance and neutrality, interlinkage with other narrative disclosures, and materiality, including providing a credible explanation of why some disclosures were considered immaterial, and finally, connectivity with financial statements. And then it goes through the TCFD recommended disclosures one by one, giving examples of good practice and opportunities for improvement. I think the examples are very helpful, and I would encourage listeners to refer to the FRC's review when drafting next year's disclosures. Thank you, Matt. And now for the New Companies Act requirements in relation to the non-financial and sustainability information statement. The changes apply to accounting periods beginning on or after 6th of April 2022, and so companies won't need to include these statements in their reports until the back end of 2023 or for 31st of December year-end companies, spring 2024. I'm sure, however, that people will want to be ready, and so could you give us an overview, please, Matt, of what the rules are? what people can do to ensure that they are prepared, and also what practical difference the new rules make for premium listed companies who already include a non-financial information statement in their annual report and make detailed climate disclosure under the listing rules. As you say, Kate, the new requirement to disclose a non-financial and sustainable information uh, section, or NFSI, uh, in the strategic report kicked in for financial years beginning in April of this year. 
This means we'll see the bulk of first disclosures in 2024 for the 1st January to 31st December 23 financial year. The NFSI statement will replace the non-financial information statement for those companies currently within the scope of that requirement. But the NFSI statement requirements are broader, both in terms of who is required to disclose and what is required to be disclosed. On the who point, in addition to those already required to publish a non-financial information statement, the NFSI statement requirement applies to AIM companies with more than 500 employees and companies with a turnover of more than 500 million and more than 500 employees. Some LLPs are also in scope. On the what point, for all in-scope companies, the NFSI statement must include climate information, which is modelled off the TCFD framework. Then, for large public interest entities, or PIEs, the disclosure obligations of the non-financial information statement remain, including disclosures relating to employees, social matters, human rights and bribery matters. For UK premium-listed companies who are subject to both the listing rule and NFSI statement requirements, it's important to note that the NFSI statement disclosures are mandatory. This is opposed or different to the listing rule requirements, which are technically on a comply or explain basis. So companies won't have the option of explaining that they haven't made the TCFD-related disclosures. They will actually need to do so under the NFSI statement, and by extension, this will flow through to their listing rule disclosures. Also, the NFSI statement disclosures must be in the annual report. It would not be sufficient to cross-refer to a separate publication. That would be non-compliant. This will mean that companies will need to make clear in their TCFD disclosures, uh, both under the NFSI and listing rule uh, requirements, uh, housed in their annual reports. There may be scope for further or supplementary TCFD disclosures to be included in a separate report, but these would not go towards compliance with the NFSI statement requirements. In terms of what companies can do to prepare, you have the companies that are already making TCFD disclosures under the listing rules, so their preparation will obviously be slightly easier. And Bayes has said that disclosure in a manner consistent with all of the TCFD recommendations and recommended uh, disclosures in its annual report for the purposes of the listing rule is likely to meet the NFSI statement requirements. So a premium listed company will only need to include one set of TCFD disclosures in its annual report to be able to comply with both listing rule requirement and FSI statement disclosure obligations on climate. That means that where premium listed companies are currently making full TCFD disclosures in their annual report under the listing rule, in practical terms, the new rules might simply be a case of amending the title of the previous non-financial information statement including new headings for the new climate disclosure requirements and including clear cross-references in the statement to the TCFD disclosures. Thank you, Matt. And now introducing Paul McCarthy for our third topic, remuneration reporting. Paul is a partner at Allen & Overy and heads up our corporate incentives team. He and the team work with many of our listed PLC clients on their director's remuneration reports and remuneration policies. 
Paul, it feels as though it's been some years since listed companies have had hard new rules to take account of in their REM report. But market expectations have continued to evolve and REM reports and policies remain the most common resolutions to receive a significant vote against at AGMs. So my question for you today is what market trends do you see in this space currently and what developments do you expect in 2023? Thank you, Kate. Um, And you're right, there have been no major changes in the rules and regulations impacting PLC remuneration reporting. But it is still making the headlines for all the wrong reasons. As ever, it is the outliers that make those headlines and it is excess that dominates. For example, in the latest reporting season, votes against companies' remuneration policies ranged up to 71% with many being in the 40 to 60% range, larger than we have seen before. There's still a COVID hangover. There is significant criticism of those companies that took furlough money, but have not repaid it and still think it appropriate to vote their executives large salary and bonus increases. One survey showed that the ratio between FTSE 100 CEO pay and employee pay rose from 75 to one to 81 to one not a trend that is easy to defend in the current climate, with the cost of living increasing almost daily. Overall, there was a 39% increase in FTSE 100 CEO pay in the last reporting season. Those companies indulging in these practices and excesses are such easy targets for those railing against executive greed. You have to ask why some remuneration committees are still getting it wrong and in some cases so badly wrong to the detriment of those companies who are more mindful of their responsibilities. The cost of living crisis is having an impact. Shareholders have been more vociferous about corporate greed, reaching new levels in an inflationary environment, and significant investors are voting against the remuneration reports of many household names for this reason. Time will tell whether this will have a lasting impact. Investors will always be focused on returns. There is also some instances of employers responding to the cost of living crisis. We are seeing more pay increases across the workforce and one-off bonuses to relieve the position. We're also seeing a higher level of focus on ESG factors driving reward this year, with investors requiring that ESG factors are an element of performance-related pay and seeking greater disclosure of underlying ESG performance. However, there remains the ongoing issue that ESG factors are much more long-term than traditional performance targets, with meaningful improvements being difficult to measure, improve in the short to medium, and even possibly long-term. ESG targets tend to be difficult measures to measure. And for some companies, it's also difficult to introduce any meaningful ESG target given their sector. Finally, I just wanted to comment on the government's recent decision to remove the cap on bankers' bonuses a classic case, it seems, of tugging the tiger's tail. The Chancellor's justification was the cap had never worked and had been overcome by the industry in various ways, as we well know. And so why continue with it? He wants the bonuses to be taxed in the UK rather than elsewhere. But surely, rather than give commentators an easy target at this difficult time, it would have been better to leave the cap in place. As he acknowledged, it didn't work, and so why worry about it? The Chancellor's justification also ignores the primary reason for the introduction of the cap, which was to prevent excessive risk-taking. Employees should receive a good base salary and not have a large part of their award bonus dependent. 
the cap did achieve that objective, forcing institutions to shift the proportion of fixed and variable pay. There must now be a risk of a return to the excesses of the past. There is also no evidence that the cap, which was applicable throughout Europe, had led to bankers working and being taxed elsewhere, other than in low-tax jurisdictions, which this decision will not change. Endorsing large bonuses in the financial services industry, not noted for its low pay, seems again difficult to justify at this time. On that note, back to you, Kate. Thank you, Paul. And now for the final topic on today's agenda, which is best practice for the format and business of AGMs in 2023. And I will turn again to Victoria Rankmore and Matt Townsend. Firstly, on the format point, Victoria, as we've moved beyond some of the public health restrictions that have dominated the last couple of years, what does best practice now look like in terms of running an AGM? Well, it's an interesting question in that during the pandemic, if companies wanted to engage meaningfully with their full shareholder base, they really had little choice but to make electronic participation available for their AGMs. And so at that time, I think many of us assumed that hybrid meetings would become the future norm. And yet this year, following the lifting of COVID restrictions, we've actually seen many companies return to the traditional physical meeting format. And while some companies did hold full hybrid meetings and many provided webcasts or dial-ins, we understand that uptake of these facilities was not always particularly high. So against this backdrop, it was very helpful that towards the end of the 2022 AGM season, the FRC published guidance on what good practice for company meetings looks like. The FRC clearly recognises the benefits of enabling both physical and electronic participation and embracing technology to maximise shareholder engagement. It also, however, recognises that one size does not fit all and that companies should make their arrangements based on their particular circumstances and shareholder base. In our experience, some clients with large and active retail shareholder bases have found hybrid meetings to be effective and appreciated by shareholders who have had a real choice in how they can engage. Whereas other clients have found it difficult to justify the additional cost and complexity, given this fairly small number of their shareholders that have chosen to use electronic participation. I recommend reading the FRC guidance document in full, but some particular points that I took away are firstly that the notice of meeting should be very clear as to how shareholders can participate, whatever the chosen meeting format is. Secondly, that companies should always encourage engagement and questions at the meeting and posting on the website either a recording of the meeting or a written transcript of the Q&A would be good practice, as would providing additional opportunities for shareholders to engage throughout the year. And finally, and this is something new, the FRC says companies should make it clear in the notice of AGM that unacceptable behaviour will not be tolerated at the meeting and that it will be dealt with appropriately by the chair. This follows a number of incidents of disruptive or inappropriate behaviour at AGMs in 2022. So companies that consider themselves to be higher risk might think it best to cover this upfront in the chair's letter. Others might feel the risk of inappropriate behaviour is more remote at their AGM and so may, for example, choose to cover this off in their more boilerplate procedural notes at the back of the notice. Thank you, Victoria. It'll be interesting to see how things develop in 2023. And finally, just before we finish, I'd like to ask you, Matt, for your views on what we're seeing in the market in terms of offering shareholders a say on climate at AGMs. 
these resolutions are becoming more common and increasing numbers of clients seem to be asking us about them. So Matt, what market trends are you seeing in this space and what initial or general thoughts do you have for companies that are considering a say on climate resolution for their AGM? Well, Kate, you're absolutely right. During the 2022 AGM season, we uh, saw an increase in the number of say on climate advisory resolutions put forward in the UK. Uh, Interestingly, though, the level of support from shareholders for these type of proposals dipped from 2021. And I think there are a few reasons for this, including increasingly stringent expectations on climate action and that the initial shine or excitement of the initiative perhaps has worn off slightly, giving rise to more scrutiny from the investor community. Another reason is the seemingly growing divide between institutional investors' approaches to say on climate resolutions, which is very much a mixed picture. For example, some investors are wary of encouraging say on climate votes given the lack of established standards or widely accepted market norms in the space. Uh, On the other hand, Some investors explicitly expect that climate action plans will provide for a say on climate management proposal. This is then overlaid with the views of proxy advisors like Glass-Lewis and influential initiatives uh, like the PRI. Glass-Lewis has some concerns with the say on climate framework, saying that the setting of a company's business, including climate um, strategy, is a function that is best served by the board and that there is a potential lack of highly technical understanding in the investment community, which could mean they are unintentionally rubber-stamping inadequate climate plans. PRI has said that the benefits of transition plan votes as a mechanism to drive comprehensive climate action seems to be outweighed by the risks and potential unintended consequences, including limiting uh, board accountability. So what do we take from all of this? I think the first point is that engaging with Say on Climate initiatives is a highly strategic move and needs to be thought through very carefully. It would require a good knowledge of how investors might react to such a resolution, so it would require specific engagement with them. Second, um, another reason why this is a strategic decision is because realistically, it will be pretty hard to reverse your decision once you've decided to go down this path. That's because the Say on Climate initiative is geared towards annual votes on the climate plan. And as a final observation, this is very much a nascent area and good practice hasn't really emerged yet. And we are in a highly evolutionary uh, phase. So that's not to say that a successful Say on Climate resolution can't be very beneficial for a company. They can provide the board with a strong mandate to implement the climate plan. And it's also a way for boards to show leadership and respond to stakeholder expectations. Thank you, Matt, and also Victoria, Kate and Paul. This concludes our agenda for today. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. We hope you found the content interesting. Do get in touch with any of us if you have questions or if we can help with any aspect of your annual report or AGM preparation.